And we're live. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode, hey, is it episode 18? 18, 18, yeah. Wow. <laughs> episode 18 of the Redesign Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Galtham, and I'm joined by my co-host, Tim Rodolo. Uh, we were originally supposed to be joined by Shruti, but unfortunately, uh, she was she was called away something urgent, so we're being summoned in by uh, Tim. Uh, and I'm very excited for this episode because, uh, as, as you might know, uh, we're based, Trimana is based in Salt Lake City, and uh, we have somewhat of a legendary Salt Lake City UX and product figure with us today. Uh, you know, uh, Ben, thanks so much for being on the show with us. Um, usually, uh, I, I, I always say this, but I think my my guests do a much better job of introducing themselves uh, than, than I do. So, uh, Ben, if you could tell tell the people on this call a little bit about uh, about yourself, about how you ended up at Seismic, as well as uh, how your role in building and creating uh, Product Hive and the Front UX Conference. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to happy to be here. I'm. I'm no legend. I'm just a, a person that likes the community and uh, definitely am very involved in the community. That's for sure. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm I'm Ben Peck. Uh, I've been in product design, UX, just design in general, um, since 2006. So it's been quite a while since I've been in the industry. Started my first four or five years in the agency life, doing some marketing and design studio world. Um, moved into, took a stab at trying to create my own design studio, thinking, yeah, I could I could do that, but it was harder than I thought um, and didn't work out so well. Uh, and then got into the, the software business, um, got recruited in and started my uh, first like official UX UX gig around 2010. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of moved into the leadership role about six or seven years ago and have been a, a director um, at Seismic specifically now to date for about four years now. So, yeah, um, my journey into like Product Hive. So for those that don't know, Product Hive is a, is a local product and design community that's evolved over the past, I'll say, I'm losing track, eight or nine years. Um, so here in Utah, uh, it all kind of started with me, uh, Andy Branch and Wade uh, Shearer um, as a kind of small design community. We started out as an IXDA chapter, then created our own community name it was beautiful product design association. We lot, got a lot of flack for our acronym for a while because it was PDA. Um, and then, <laughs> and then uh, yeah, we, we merged with a, another product design product organization and, and rebranded it to product hive about four or five years ago. So um, yeah, it's really grown. Grow, I think I joined helping out Andy and Wade organize events product and design events. Um, there's 20 people. It's grown to over 9,000, I think, now at this point. Here in Utah, we have one. Chicago, LA, New York uh, are main kind of chapters that we have. People that have left Utah wanted to start chapters in other areas and um, kind of expanded a little bit there. But 
it's mostly core to, to the Utah scene. Uh, and then that started all in 2010 and about three or four, I can't remember now at this point, but a few years into Product Hive, we decided we wanted to do a, a legit conference here in Utah and say, instead of fly out to the big cities and leave Utah to go to a conference, we'll just bring the conference to you. And um, right. the, yeah, the tech industry here in Utah, just as it expanded, we expanded with it and providing community sources for it. So yeah, that's a little bit of my, my journey. That's awesome. Uh, and and so, uh, by the way, I, like, I want, this episode, I want to make sure that uh, I spend time talking about two things with you, right? Because uh, and I think they're equally equally interesting and important to learn about. Um, first, of course, I would love to kind of delve deeper into uh, your role at Seismic and and you know learn about how you think about the relationship between product design and growth at Seismic and stuff like that. But I also want to make sure that we set aside time to talk about uh, what it's like to build a product community, like what makes what what compels product people? Uh, you know, what what kind of stuff do they seek out? And how how do you how do you build that community? I want to make sure that we spend time doing that as well. Um, which of these would you like to talk about first, Ben? Either one. I, I mean, they're all intertwined in my life at this point. Okay. So I'm happy cool. to talk about either. So. So. Um, for for those of you who don't know, Seismic is a sales enablement platform, uh, and it has a variety of products all geared towards like sales and customer success enablement. Um, that's that's me with like a limited understanding in five minutes of Google. But Ben, if you could talk a little bit about sort of the core use case that that the, the Seismic suite of product services, and and kind of tell us a little bit more about your role in that. Uh, I think that would be a great jump-off point for us to uh, for us to talk a little bit more about uh, product and growth at Seismic. Yeah, so Seismic is uh, an enablement and sales sales enablement and sales software um, to basically bridge the gaps between marketing and sales. In many ways, it's very much a, a B2B software, high, high enterprise. Um, we have about I'm losing track now at this point, 1,200 in uh, customers. I joined to kind of rewind my experience with Seismic. I, uh, 2020, late 2019, I joined Seismic through an acquisition from a company I, I joined in New York called Percolate. And the company itself was about 600 employees. Uh, there was about seven or eight designers at the time when I joined. Um, I was the first design leader to join. Uh, they were all reporting the product at the time. Um, and design was very much a centralized design team that was supporting uh, a very large engineering organization with product just getting built. Um, since then, fast forward to today, um, we've gone from a 600 employee company with eight designers to 1200 employees with a, a design team that's decentralized now to I think we're at 33 um, design, design and research um, uh, organization. So we have, yeah, a good 30, uh, 20, 29 scrum uh, cross-functional teams uh, that work within Seismic and the we we sell the product as the enablement cloud so it's everything from 
creating a plan, task management, project management, to content creation, to content delivery, to from marketing to sales, through a lot of governance, to sales delivery of that content, the most useful content to buyers, to work deals that go from 30 days to five months, um, depending on the, the scale of the, the deal that they're, they're closing. Um, so I think, uh, right off the bat, right. I think, I think there's this thing about, uh, B2B softwares, but like we're, we're in the B2B software selling business where I, I feel like when you're building a product to service a B2B use case, um, there are sort of unique pain points uh, to a specific job function or a job role. Uh, and, and that kind of morphs, right? Like there, there, there's obviously very, like massive variations, just like within product teams, within sales teams, there are massive variations. Uh, but what would you say is like the core pain point that, that uh, you know, the, the seismic PVC is just like a North star or like what, where did, where did it start in terms of, Hey, this is a chief problem that we found across sales teams that we're gonna, that, that we're gonna kind of drill down into it. Yeah. So sales enablement is a, a relatively new function and it's a new, um, we're, we're basically creating our own, um, industry standard. So there was, before the seismic world or the the other competitors I won't name because I don't want to name them, um, there was marketing software and or tooling, and then there was sales tooling. Um, everybody knows the sales forces of the world. Everybody knows the marketing marketos, the all the marketing yep. HubSpot world. There was this <laughs> huge disconnect. The problem that we're solving was that. Um, there's no governance or no centralized place for marketing to deliver content to sales and sales to pull con the right content and know what's most up to date um, and use the core branding um, and even get analytics or success metrics around the content that they're using within their sales cycles. So that's the true core like solve that we're solving for B2B companies is this interconnectivity between giving marketers the ability to create governance around or templates or core resources to sales, sales using those resources and then delivering those resources to buyers, um, no longer as attachments in emails or uh, calls, they send a link to uh, what we call sales rooms that mm -hmm. allow this ongoing conversation to happen throughout a long period of time it starts with one one person could scale to to 30 people making a decision on whether they they want to move forward with a, a purchase of a, a software that could be multi-million dollar deal so i i think um a lot of our our software is solving how do i take 12 i don't know like a, a set of con different softwares and have them all work within one system that works with the the process that they go through within a business. Right. Um, so I, I think, I think this use case is, is pretty interesting, right? Like, because uh, both Tim and I have had these team pleasure of like leading sales efforts uh, at, at the company at various stages, like when we were earlier stage. Um, and 
a large part of it is is just knowing the right thing to say at the right time or or like you know finding the relevant piece of information and at the con at the same time like the marketing function is constantly generating content right like we're, we're just constantly pumping out you know, blog posts and 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 you know like how do's and uh and comparisons and what have you um uh, and just like finding that stuff right now it's like okay just go and search the blog or, or a lot of i'm sure like a lot of uh companies today just manage that stuff on like a google sheet right which is like okay if someone asks about whatever cccpa compliance like send them this link or if someone asks about this thing you know whatever like moderated testing we send them this link and what like i think i think from a product perspective why is it stickier and why is it smoother to use a tool like seismic uh versus just like yeah just, just managing it on a spreadsheet yeah, I think that there's really different problems to solve um, for different size of organizations. So seismic at the enterprise level, when you have thousands of sellers selling products, say for IBM, the, the amount of information and core dealings of, to help serve all of those sellers and make sure that that they're in sync internally within the organization mm -hmm. between marketing and and what they're selling has to be very clear and it takes a lot the orchestration level is very different than say a mid-sized level company to enterprise to a, a small small business right right so um i think i mean the industry is really interesting whether you like the idea of uh buying a product and having to talk to somebody about buying that product and demoing that product um versus just the the freemium to buy it yourself self-serve model like a pure plg model right yeah it's it's very it's a di very different process across the board um and uh we're solving those problems for the the scenarios where it's much more complicated of a sales um, deal than for those small business freemium kind of models. Right. Uh, and I think it's it's very, very different. And interestingly enough, coming from like a designer's perspective coming into this world, like sales has um, a rep, like whether people like to be sold to or not, they're being sold to all the time. Yeah. And yeah earlier earlier in my career i was always like oh yeah i'm here for the design the quality level the interaction the um i'm solving problems for the user and in in reality everything sales <laughs> um and if i look past it in my career like every product or everything that i've designed for is really to improve the sales process whether it was a sales software or not sales software and uh like coming to that reality was really interesting to to experience of um how am i helping a company sell their product better but in a way that feels very acceptable and and authentic and ethical to to a buyer whatever level of a buyer that it that is it's really all comes down to sales yeah I, and by the way like i I, I want to drill a little bit 
deeper into this, you know, the, the idea of everything is sales. It's very interesting to hear, uh, you know, a, a, like, probably say that. Um, because I, I think even more recently, and, and this is like the core thesis of this podcast, is like, hey, if I talk to enough intelligent people, will we learn something about um, the relationship between design, like product design and product experience and growth? Because I, I, and, and we've had guests on, right? like we've had, we've had Wade on, we've had uh, John Polushko, who's a member, and th- there's this idea of path to dollars, and 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 like growth and, and revenue is like a driving force for design decision making. Uh, can you speak to a little bit about, hey, like, how do you how do you think about the design initiatives all of those teams are taking inside Seismic? How do you think about that in relation to uh, like? growth or, or like, you know, growing an existing deal value or, or like, you know, just adding a creative value to a product that, that can be upsold or something to that nature. Uh, is that, is, are those kind of conversations that are coming, like, you know, are coming into being in, in the team, like where, where, where like, you know, the product manager and designers are there and you're talking about, Hey, like, this is, this is going to actually have a pot to dollars, like pot, pots to dollars, like X. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the thought process around building product uh, in that sense? Yeah, I, I'm, I love that we're having this conversation because when it comes to design and business and decision making, it's really there's this fallacy within our industry that design doesn't need to think about the bottom line. The They're thinking about the user and they're thinking about the ease of use and the quality of experience for for the customer. Um, at the end of the day, that always moves back down to the bottom line of like, who bought it? Are they in, like, do they enjoy the experience that they're going through? Are they happy with what they bought essentially? Um, and when you talk about B2B, there's your, um, uh, your advocates, basically your the people that, bought the software and then there's the people that use the software and a lot of a lot of people a lot of companies get sucked into and even design to some degree get sucked into this i gotta serve the needs of the person who bought it and not always everyone that uses it and you go back and forth between this b2c versus b2b um b2c basically everyone is your buyer and b2b is you have core buyers and you want to keep them happy from the sales cycle to the renewal cycle to the whatever that may be. Um, And designers, when you're an IC, I think you see less visibility into that. And you're thinking about the core features. You're thinking about maybe retention. You're trying to think about if you can get your ice, like I see, I use IC, which is terrible. I shouldn't use, terms like uh, acronyms when people don't maybe individual contributors when you're like your core designers um, they think well product is gonna worry about that of like whether it was successful or not I don't have to worry about that I just have to worry about whether I'm creating a good experience or not but they do have to worry about that because if they don't and retention doesn't happen or lifetime value doesn't happen you don't have a job as a, as a designer. Like you have nothing to design for if people aren't willing to buy it again or buy it for the first time or be convinced that this is going to solve their problems. So if you can get 
um, I think 100% all design leaders need to think in uh, metrics of how, what's the, what is, what are my decisions? How are my de decisions affecting PNL or profit and your losses? What a, with whatever area of the application that you're you're owning, um, for smaller startups, that's everything. For businesses like mine, I'm a product design director, but I own only one piece of the experience that has mm -hmm. a core PNL to it um, and a persona that's related to it. If we have to think about the value that we're we're providing and a lot of complaints that happen within our industry are oh we're making top-down decisions or we're not doing bottom up bottom up enough decisions the bottom up like theory or argument is always what are our customers telling us that we want mm -hmm. sometimes in the b2b world those customers are telling us what they want um from a usability standpoint, but they're not tying that back to the the value that it's providing them. Um, yeah. And oftentimes the top down are strategic moves that they see are valuable and actually are based on core bottom line value that, that go to the business as well. So this, I, it's just a balancing act in my, in my opinion. Got it. Um, so, before before we switch gears, I think uh, a question a question I would love to throw your way is: Do you see in like if if you could if you could change one thing about like how designers today are thinking about uh, about you know the pot the dollars or thinking about the bottom line and 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 also by the way I will say this right I I understand why it's difficult. Right for designers to think about the bottom line because with with sales it's you're so close to the bottom line it's just how many deals did you close or did you not right or even with marketing you could be like all right well you know this was the conversion rate so did I did I increase the conversion rate or did I increase the leads coming in the funnel did I did I not do that and how does that impact bottom line right like you you have these sort of one step removed relationships from the bottom line but when you get to like design uh, I feel like it. It, it gets a little more muddied. So how do you, how do you, how, how would designers, other designers are listening to this podcast, right? how would they be able to form that link or like form that breadcrumb trail where they look at what they're designing and, and how would they form that relationship to the bottom line? Yeah, I think so in a, in a B2B world, we focus particularly at Seismic around voice of the customer, tying that voice of the customer to actual um, dollar amounts of opportunity opportunity value, purely based on conversations that sales um, customer success account managers are finding for us. And then you tie the core usability problems that you see around what they would complain about with the product. Um, and if you can kind of combine those two into a clear plan for what you are trying to accomplish and prioritize the ones that do show the most core value to the bottom line or to lifetime value or renewals, um, that is where you need to need to think because 
oftentimes designers are only thinking about the pain points of users and not tying that does this pain point or does this new feature idea is it is it just cool or do would they buy it more for it is it a is it an actual solving a problem for them and um when it comes to the b2c side like i was in the b2b2c world through a marketplace at jane and a lot of that has to do with uh what's going to keep people coming back and finding out that through a lot of data and you have to you have really have to focus a lot on analytics data and the core your core returning customers to mm -hmm. really know what problems you're solving and then what we would focus a lot on is the the sellers and the the marketplace the people and what they were trying to accomplish as a as a as a seller a small business seller within the marketplace so um i don't know if that outlines it really well for designers specifically but you really have to tie a decision you're making not just to does it solve the usability problem but does it also solve this thing is competitive in what they already do today in their current reality right um yeah. I, I actually wanted to talk about something that we kind of came back to but you also talked about earlier which is you, you said something along the lines of um you know being in a relatively new space that you're often creating your own industry standards as you build stuff right um so that got me pretty curious about what the user research looks like for for those process of coming up with new industry standards you know what what kind of a role user research plays us research and and how that fits into your process could you tell us a little bit about that yeah research is ingrained in everything um i think that there's this swing um there's this really interesting balance of uh in the industry itself around how much research do i need to do around what level of risk i'm trying to build around and uh there's companies that are big enough or that are smart enough to hire researchers earlier on in their growth cycle of a of a business um and there's others that rely a lot on heavily heavily on intuition and then there's just market opportunity um at seismic in particular we're we're defining what sales enablement is for a lot of people uh if you go and ask somebody what is sales enablement 90 percent of the people are going to be like i have no idea what what are, what you're saying this is a new term and um you have to tell me what it is but from an industry standard of like what did we use for research? We found that there was a problem, like I think from a core understanding of the industry, that there was this industry-wide problem that you could see within in, with within marketing and and within sales of, hey, we these things don't talk well together, or we're creating this thing to try to help improve this problem, and you could see it ac across multiple customers. And so we saw that as opportunity to um, solve that problem for them because nobody else was. And through 
in the very early days of seismic it was build stuff like it was the build fast and break things kind of model of like if i build it and they come and use it and i'm solving that problem for them um that's great like i i uh it's the build and then test approach rather than the research understand the problem and then build like from core customers and then build what what you need to we're we're definitely more in that phase of now that we have so many customers we can we can go to those customers and we can and research them from a design perspective we've we had to how fast we scaled as a as an organization from 600 employees to 1200 and how much growth we had our first goal was to decent go from that decentralized design team to a centralized design team so we we built our design team around more of a a full stack approach to a design designers needing to do the research partnered with product um, and not have dedicated researchers but have them as designers do that core research uh, and make those decisions together with product as a as a team effort uh, and the design leads, obviously. Now, I, I know, Rit, that you're wanting to, to switch gears and talk about um, product community. I just want to follow up a little more on this. Okay. Um, because, you, Ben, you were talking about, um, you know, you have the designers doing research. And, and it's kind of, there's a lot of controversy around this. I, you know, some, some, you know, you are not the only person we know who, who has designers do research. But then we have other people that we know that say, no, designers should not be doing research. Because they, you know, if, there's different arguments, but um, I, I'm curious on your thoughts on that. You know, what what are some of the benefits of having the designers doing the research directly? Um, are there anything uh, things to worry about or, or consider to to make sure they don't go wrong? Um, are there any risks that you uh, you know you have to manage for? Um, what what does that landscape look like for you? Yeah, so I I I do want to add a little bit of clarity to that. So like designers are not the only ones doing research so it's a combination effort of uh product going to i would say sales and cs like customer success are doing research for us purely based on profit or like wins law win and win and losses conversations they're having with the customer directly on a day-to-day -day basis yeah so we rely a, a heavily on them we use a tool called Vivin inside of Salesforce that then tracks all of that feedback we're getting from customers to then turn into opportunities, basically, tied to that baseline value that you're seeing. Then you have product and design that are going to core customers and saying, you're, we're hearing this from all, a, a lot of our core customers. We're going to diverge and think try to figure out what it is exactly and decipher all of that information that we're receiving into solutions to then test with those with those people um would it be best if we had researchers doing that full time with all of our customers for each strategic area 100 because we have to bifurcate our time towards Hey, we're doing some research on we have different tiers so tier one tier two tier three projects 
strategic, tactical cost of doing business. Um, based on the tier or, or of the project is how much research we're putting into that. And Jeff Bezos has a, a really good strategy. I don't know if you've heard of his like tier one. I mean, his, um, shoot, his, uh, no, I'm going to forget it. It's, he has a, a, a theory around whether you, a, a problem is a, is um, like an open door, type one, type two decision. That's what he's called. The one-way door versus the two-way, is that the one? Yeah, it's the type one, type two decisions. Right. Yeah. And we we layer the type one decisions into those strategic areas and the type two decisions where you just need, you can go through that door and then just automatically go through it, like walk right back through it if it didn't work out super well. Um, is how we kind of layer on that yeah. research level of of work. But to your point, Tim, I think there is a lot of value in having dedicated researchers. Um, I think it's interesting to see how different companies at what levels invest in that that research and why, based on how fast they're growing, whether they uh, uh, whether they understand the value of it earlier on, um, whether they need it to better understand the market opportunities. Um, say Jane, Jane was only 150 employees. I hired a U UX research director manager with a team of five designers really early on because we needed to understand what adjacent markets we could we could go and go uh, build into because we had our, we basically were dominating our core market. Um, right. And research is the only way to do that. And you need full-time research to be able to do that. And then we layered on top of that, how can we help the designers do their core research around the features they were deciding on and how to do best practices of research with the team. Um, yeah. Cool. And, and just uh, the, so for, for the listeners that don't know the difference between type one and type two, type one decisions are one-way doors or irreversible things. Type two decisions can be reversed. These two have different decision-making pro processes where type one is obviously more meticulous and uh, type two, you have the ability to reverse it so you can move faster on those. And that's, that's at least in a nutshell what those are. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, so uh, I would like to switch gears here and say that, first of all, uh, community building, like what you've done with Product Hive, how you've grown it. Uh, you know, you said when you're up to 9,000 people now, um, and you have multiple state chapters as well now, it's not just Utah. Uh, that is unbelievable. Um, and I think I, I think for me, right, what, what sticks out the most is, for for product people and, and and you know like that's product managers designers uh ux researchers product marketing managers even i i feel like it you need to add value in terms of thought you need to have value in terms of, I, I need to feel like i'm learning something for me to con consistently and continuously engage with the community so when you are 
on the ground floor of a community building exercise, right? What would you say is the most important thing? Because I'm pretty sure like a lot of people out there, uh, companies even are trying to build communities that that they can use to engage like a certain customer base, a customer profile, um, but oh, very few of them succeed in doing so uh, organically or building like an engaged community. So for in your opinion, like, when you're on the ground floor of this thing, specifically for for uh, product hive, right? What, how did you, how, what did you set out, or what were some core principles uh, that that were important for you uh, as you built out the product hive community? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, community building and like running a nonprofit is like a completely different world in many ways. And I think one core thing that was true to the success of Product Hive in front uh, was this uh, altruistic um, desire to help anyone at any level within this di the discipline itself. And I think what we found was I think a lot of the success of what Product Hive became was the right time, the right place, and uh, the growth of what we saw tech within the Utah, like, space mm -hmm. in general. Right. Yeah. But uh, I think what what we found was, going back to research a little bit, is that, one, this was, this is all nonprofit volunteer-based, and the thing that I see with the phallus, well, two things before I go into the research part of it, I think the fallacy of a lot of people who try to create um, communities have this non altruistic model around, I'm trying to do build this community, or this selfish purpose right, to sell them software, yeah. <laughs> what have you, right? Uh, yeah. And people see through that, like, it's a thin ice, right? Yeah. And one thing that Product Hive has just done really well is said, we have no value that we're getting out of this other than to learn from one another. And people truly understood that from the beginning. And that core culture has stayed without the larger we've gotten, which I think is what has grown that success that this this group is one consistent with what the value that they're providing to me and understands. So going into the research side, once we started doing events, it was all about consistency and then understanding which value, which events were the most valuable to people. And we just locked in on this concept of really people just wanted to hear what other people were doing at their companies and wanted to hear the real story of the core um, experiences that they were going through. And as we found people that were willing to and could share the things that they were doing within their own organization, whether they were trying to follow a, an industry standard or they read this book and they were trying to apply it to their own work, that that's what people cared about because everybody was trying to do that within their own companies and there didn't feel like there was one company backing it that was like we are trying to influence you to do it 
one way or the other, or right. it was very much a, a shared process of everybody's trying to do it in different ways and we're not mm-hmm. trying to sell you anything. And I think that that really was the success of, of the, the community for sure. That's, that's awesome. And I, and I think that that rings true, right? Uh, people, people don't like being sold to, uh, is what, what I realized, right? Like, unless they are explicitly in the market for a solution, uh, they, I don't think they like to be sold, sold to, uh, especially like in, in like a bait and switch kind of situation, um, and which, which is what a lot, like a lot of communities kind of fly close to that. Um, what I would love to know is uh, on the other side, though, right? Like when you have, when you are when you are in charge of a community, you're trying to you're trying to be yeah, inclusive. And I'm not talking about from like a diversity, like a DEI perspective, but inclusive in the sense of like talk, right? Like you're trying to get people. It's like, hey, come come, like talk, talk to us about your product process. There's people that are doing it all kinds of different ways, etc. Uh, obviously, the, I, I I don't think it'd be fair or real to say that everyone is doing it right and everyone like you know everyone's showing up with a good idea like i don't think that's that's true uh and and that's not me just being a cynic i, I genuinely think right like uh, a lot of people have have like a wrong, like might have a strong conviction in like a wrong like a bad idea or something like that but when you create a forum for people to share a thought um how do you how do you do you do you do you practice some degree of censorship are you like hey uh like no man like this this you know this doesn't meet whatever community guideline standards or or what you're saying is not it like you know this isn't this isn't good or does everyone or do you just have like a facebook sort of conversation everyone come say everything and then we'll figure it out like you know uh the the cream will rise to the top and you have that faith like how do you how how do you essentially uh do do you curate content on the community and if so to one degree i guess yeah interestingly enough we have we have both so we have a slack community that has seven thousand people in it and they say whatever they want and they ask questions and they say this is how i'm doing it and this is um this is the approach that i'm doing it and really the only guidelines we have around like moderation for that Slack community is if people are really trying to sell you things through the community and mm-hmm. uh, and is the conversation happening in the right places. Uh, so a lot of the moderation has to do with those things within this like broader Slack community. But for the events themselves, it's very much a we're seeking good quality stories and case studies and we have conversations about those case studies and we have guidelines around what it is that the community is looking for and what the community is not looking for. And um, I would say we have a, a board of people that help us define what that quality level is and what those guidelines are to help enforce the quality of the, the in-person events or online events. Um, that we provide or the programs that we decide to create because we have events, we have mentorship program, we have a job board, we have, um, we've tried other things like, could you, could we do office visits and just like touring the the community? Like, do people want that? Do they not want that? Um, 
and uh, a lot of that is a lot has go, goes back to core what does the community need research did what we provided provide value to you did you feel like you were sold to did you not what's a like we learn from every single attempt but we attempt it and yeah um i think the hardest part about running a community is the volunteerism aspect of it i think the the thing that is the death of most communities is having people willing to continue to contribute to it over a very long period of time i think a lot of people are surprised and uh that product have has grown so much but also is still around because <laughs> yeah. you see so many communities get like meet up for instance people will create communities and then it'll die a year and a half later because whoever created it loses their ability to like yeah something changes in their life or whatever they lose either or they could just lose interest right like they, either way like yeah. it just it kind of becomes like a sahara and then it, it fades away that's that's a good point uh what is something in your experience was there at your journey building product hive at any point was there something that surprised you or or that was unexpected that came to you from, from the community where you were like whoa like this thing is like i didn't i didn't even think people were going to do this kind of stuff here and uh because th sometimes there's like this emergent phenomenon that happens i think you know from um when you just put a large group of people together honestly uh and you have them talk long enough there's there's stuff that often happens that's unexpected uh have you, did, have you ever experienced something like that yeah that's an interesting one i have lots of potential ways i could go with that answer <laughs> there's definitely a lot of things that i think the first one that came to mind for me was when i first started doing this like a lot of designers do this they work a full-time job and then they do freelance work on the side to like earn a little extra money get some different experience give it have a little bit of autonomy i did that for maybe the first six years seven years of my mm -hmm. experience and then i told i told my significant other my partner i'm like hey honey i'm gonna go and uh spend time on this thing that will give us no money it's not gonna provide us anything uh and i invested in it and i said i i'm gonna put my time towards it and the surprising thing that came out of that was the 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 connections you make with the people within the community all of a sudden opened doors to things that i would have never gotten any other way all like right. it, it that's been the surprising thing for me, like the the unforeseen benefits that don't feel like you're selling somebody something. Um, all of a sudden, you have this ability to help other people, and um, every single one of my jobs has come from my involvement in in this community, uh, purely based on uh my like the ability for us to to like get to know each other outside of an interview process kind of thing so i think that one's been the really interesting one i think the other one i'll mention is 
the larger a community gets, the harder it gets to feel like it's people know everyone and feel like there's this lack of you trying to maintain this, this trust of uh, who we are and the people and the quality of the people in it uh, becomes harder and harder to, to maintain um, because not everybody knows everyone anymore. So right. and that's how this draft like making it. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I think I think uh, you know the building building a community for any sort of expertise, uh, especially when you have like you know you're building a community that's not general purpose, but it's in a specific vector, a right, specific discipline, and then to, to constantly keep that interesting and engaging. That's um, that's that's hard to do. At, so at what point, I think, was it was it 2015 that you had the first front conference? Um, yeah. Uh, so how do, how do you go from community to conference, right? Like, what is what is the thought process that sparks uh, sparks that you mentioned? Like, you know, hey, we don't want people to go out in the big cities. There's enough enough talent here so we can do our own homegrown conference. But after you've decided that, um, how do you galvanize interest for people to come through? And because at that point, the conference is, is more of an economic undertaking, right? For a nonprofit. It's not, it's not like a one-off thing anymore. Uh, you, you're pumping a bunch of money into this, uh, into the specific event and you're looking for, uh, a degree of ROI because you're selling tickets. You're at least looking for like a break even ROI, um, at the very least. So how, how do you how do you think about it in that sense? Yeah, so it, uh, as the community grew from the twenty people to <clears throat> to maybe around fifteen hundred people, we realized uh -huh. that we could take this model that we were doing for free events and say we're gonna we're gonna find the cream of the crop of event like speaking case studies that we have found people find a lot of value in these like lunch and learn events that we were getting a hundred people, 200 people out to at one point to then say, well, why not, uh, why not make it more official, bring some money into it. Could people, would people be willing to sponsor it? Could we get, the right set of speakers to then hold a really big event over a couple days and see if we could get even more people to attend it. And, and obviously we started with as low of cost as we possibly could do for a conference. And I would even argue that our, the cost for our conference or our workshops is very low compared to many other places that offer it in other places. Um, and we try to keep that as low as possible so that it doesn't feel like, um, it is something that we're trying to take advantage of, of people for. And, um, what ended up happening was we said, we're going to do an experiment like you would with any other product, um, and say, could we do this? And we ran the first one, um, we often don't talk about the first one very much because it was in this old dance hall and it had like air conditioning that was mostly like uh 
it wasn't even air conditioning. It was just those swamp coolers in it. And <laughs> the stage was one of those stages that was just like the things you see it at rodeos or whatever with some black curtains to cover it up. And we got this combination of people who were well known in the industry outside of Utah. And then we got people who had really good ideas and were leading companies in Utah. And we we found this balance between the two of come see people that you don't normally get to see or that you know really well, and you might not be able to afford to go visit somewhere else to, to do that for at a much cheaper cost and give people in Utah the opportunity to express how they're trying to solve product problems when sometimes those people don't get the light of day in a big city. Um, so this blend between, and we've, we've hold, we've held true to that throughout the years that at, at minimum, we need 50% of the people presenting at the conference to be local to Utah and 50% of them can be from out of state. Um, uh, we haven't held to exactly true percentages with that every year, but um, it has been core to our belief that we're trying to provide people opportunities to share that that knowledge of how are we doing it, whether they've yeah. written a book or not about it, essentially. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure if you if you have that as your north north star, even if you don't hit the exact fifty percent mark, you get pretty close closer than you would if you weren't even trying, and that's that's you know what matters is ensuring that you do have the local representation. That's cool. Yeah, uh, you know we are at time here, a little over actually, so we'll go ahead and wrap up. Um, ben, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. We've gotten to talk about a lot of interesting different topics. Um, some that we talk on here with everyone about, some that we don't talk with anyone else about. So that that was a great mix. Um, and I'm sure our listeners got a lot out of that. And I know me and Ritt did. Uh, before we sign off, want to give you a minute. Do you have anything you want to plug, anything you want to let people know about, let people to, you know, tell people to check out um, that you're doing these days? We basically talked about everything that I'm doing these days <laughs> throughout the whole, um, the whole thing. So, go to product is it producthive.com or nothing to plug? Yeah, go to producthive.org if you're interested in the community and frontutah.com if you're interested in the conference and the workshop series that we do each year. Um, we do what I would consider some really great events and um, hope that people get value out of them. And, and if you have, if you want to contribute to them, please let me know. Happy to, happy to hear about them. Um, I mean, you can reach me at benpeck.com or through ben at frontutah.com. All right. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Ben. Uh, have a great rest of your weekend and to our listeners um, have a great weekend as well. And we'll see you next time. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for having me on, Ben. See ya. Bye.